traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's Twilight Zone begins with some gentle music, some light-hearted, affectionate banter between a man and his elderly mother as he leads her down the stairs, and a five-year-old boy blowing out the candles on his birthday cake. What could be more pleasant? The boy, who is named Billy, obviously has a close relationship with his grandmother, Grandma Bales, and... This draws a few slightly disapproving but accepting looks from the boy's parents. Grandma Bales dotes on Billy and she can't contain her happiness. I'd like to say something. Could I say something? Sure. My little Billy, my wonderful little boy, he gave me life again. An old woman Good for nothing, no more, but to complain. He held out his hands to me and made me alive. Why are you crying, Grandma? I don't know, my angel. Maybe because I won't be here with you for very long. Why? I will be away. Where? Nowhere, Billy. Grandma's going to be right here next year and the year after that. No, don't lie to him. I will be gone. When Billy opens his presents, we see that Grandma Bales has bought him a toy telephone. So he can always speak to her wherever she is. So here we are in this beautiful house with this idealized version of the 1950s stroke early 60s American family. All very pleasant, all very nice. But when Grandma Bales falls ill, the episode switches to a different track, which may well lead to one of the darkest and most chilling Twilight Zones of all. Two opening speeches were written for Rod Serling, and Martin Grams Jr. documents them both in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. And he says, because the initial script did not have narrations that satisfied sailing, two different openers were drafted. Neither of the two was used for the program. And the first one goes like this. We are eavesdroppers now standing at the elbow of an unseen personage called Mr. Death, the omnipresent player to the third and final act of every life on stage. And it has been said, and I suppose proven over and over again, that there is finality and completeness to death, that whatever new adventure awaits in the darker sphere, that is the life after this one, we have to await the experience ourselves. There is no bridge to the beyond, or so it is said, but in a moment, a child's plaything, something as simple and as obvious as a play telephone will figure in a probing of the mystery that lies beyond us, a child's telephone connected at one end 
by a child's faith and at the other by an operator in the twilight zone. Now that one is perhaps a little too cryptic and it focuses on that great voyage into the great unknown of death with this very grandiose speech and then coming back down to the child's telephone and the second, as you'll hear now, goes maybe too far the other way. There's no real substance to it and that one goes like this. Everyone knows what a telephone is and what it does, but how many of us know why? When we pick up that familiar object and talk to people we've never seen and listen to their voices come flying back to us across thousands of miles. But how many of us give it a second thought? Not many, but we might, if like Paulie Bales, we found ourselves connected with the Twilight Zone. So like I said, not a great deal of substance to that one, maybe a bit too thin and I'm not quite sure where the name Paulie came from, maybe from an earlier draft. So let's leave the opening to the master in tonight's episode, Long Distance Call. As must be obvious, this is a house hovered over by Mr. Death, that omnipresent player to the third and final act of every life. And it's been said, and probably rightfully so, that what follows this life is one of the unfathomable mysteries. An area of darkness which we, the living, reserve for the dead. Or so it is said. For in a moment, a child will try to cross that bridge which separates light and shadow. And of course, he must take the only known route, that indistinct highway, through the region we call the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 31st, 1961. Written by Charles Beaumont and Bill Idelson and directed by James Sheldon. Interesting how Rod Serling says Mr. Death in the opening, hearkening back to Mr. Death in One for the Angels. I don't think there's any real meaning behind that. Maybe it's just his words of choice. Now this is one of those videotaped episodes and I feel that at this point they had a much better handle on it. It looks better than all of the others. There's no real evidence of that trailing across the screen when people moved and Rod Serling's open narration itself fits really well. In some of them, he seemed to kind of awkwardly walk into the shot, but this one is a lot more natural and I like the seriousness that he brings to it when he says that the child is crossing that bridge between light and shadow and entering the twilight zone. You know, that really carries some ominous weight to it. Now I mentioned that the story was written by Charles Beaumont and Bill Idelson and it actually originated from a short story by Bill Idelson called Party Line. Now I don't think that was published or if it was I can't find it so I can't go into much detail on that. But in the Twilight Zone Companion Idelson says it grew out of a true situation which I expanded and fictionalized. It was after the birth of my first kid, a little boy. It was just a situation in the house with my mother there and my wife there. And she had given my kid a toy telephone for the second birthday. And I saw her call him on the phone. It's so hard to know how ideas come, but it was like a flash. Now this one has a kind of meandering journey to the Twilight Zone and a couple of other players get involved now. Richard Matheson, another of Idelson's friends, first submitted it to the Twilight Zone. 
and it was rejected. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Bill Idelson says, What happened was I wrote a script and Richard Matheson, who wrote a number of episodes for The Twilight Zone, read it and told me that he thought it was good. He told me he was going to show it to Rod Serling. Well, I got a phone call later and it was from Charles Beaumont. He said he got my story and wanted to write the script and I would get half the money and we would both get credit on the screen. I told him I wrote a script entitled Direct Line, not a story, so he looked into it. I don't think they like my script, but they like the story. I got a runaround regarding the whereabouts of my story. I agreed to go along with it, because a friend of mine told me a long time ago that to get your foot in the door, sometimes you have to let someone take advantage of you. So that is how my story got on the Twilight Zone. Now, Bill Idelson was one of those kind of guys that we don't really see the like of anymore because of how times have changed in the world. He started a radio career in 1931 and found success with radio comedy. Then, when World War II started, he joined up and became a decorated fighter pilot. When television became king, he moved to that, but wasn't particularly prolific as an actor and he's probably most famous for being in the Dick Van Dyke show, but he popped up in a few things over the years like the comedy show Will and Grace. Interestingly, he actually played a character called Kelly in the Twilight Zone episode, A World of Difference, the one where the man finds that his life is actually a movie set. So Idelson is quite unique in Twilight Zone history as having acted in and written an episode. And he's right, he did get his foot in the door with the Twilight Zone and it was a bit of a springboard for him because he went on to write quite a lot of television things like Get Smart, The Odd Couple, Punky Brewster, those kind of regular TV shows. But back to Long Distance Call, like I said earlier, this lovely suburban setting with a nice family and the boy opening his presents quite quickly descends into shadow. But what I like is that while on the surface you could say that this is almost a typical 1950s American television family, there is a truth to this, a certain reality. We have this situation where Grandma Bales has moved in with her son Chris Bales and her daughter-in-law Sylvia. This is something that happens all the time and I don't want to categorise all instances of it as the same thing. I'm sure it works out very well in most cases, but it can also create tensions within the household, and we see that here. The way Grandma lavishes affection on young Billy in such an intense way, she does it to the detriment of everything else, almost pushing everyone else aside to get to Billy. And we see that in the scene where she gives the gift of the toy phone to Billy. One of the magical moments of parenthood is giving your child a gift at Christmas or on their birthday and seeing their reaction. But Grandma, with this kind of forceful love of Billy that she has, interrupts that moment where Sylvia and Chris are giving their son a present. We'll talk a bit more about this relationship later on, but for now, again, we're in a place where the Twilight Zone is tackling a very real situation, you know, broaching the subject of the death of a grandparent or a loved one to a child 
As adults, we do try to shelter them to a degree, but that often includes lying to them, trying to give them temporary comfort with the best of intentions, but still lying to them. Might as well put him to bed. Yeah. Billy, try to understand this. But your grandmother's sick. She's very sick. So why don't you wait till she gets well again? I want to see her now. Oh, come on, honey. Don't do that. Come on now. Well, all right, Billy. Just for a minute. This is quite a chilling scene because the actor who plays Grandma, Lily Darvash, is lay on her back as the family enters the room and she naturally looks very gaunt and she might as well be dead as they enter because she looks that way but then she speaks hello ma who are you i'm your son chris your son no no my son was taken away from me by a woman. This is my son now, Billy, my son. So quite a sad thing for a son to hear. You know, my son was taken away from me by a woman. Billy's my son now. Again, I think it is a very truthful and real moment though, because that is the feeling that she's probably harboured for years. You know, her son, who used to be that little boy who would love her unconditionally and look to her for everything, doesn't need her anymore. And she probably feels like a burden. But Billy gives her that unconditional love again that Chris used to. And as she approaches death, she verbalises that in a not very tactful way, quite a hurtful way, but it is how she feels, so I like this. I like this a lot because it feels to me that Idelson and Beaumont really have captured the reality of that situation, those complicated relationships. Lily Darvash, who played Grandma, was born in 1902, so she's coming up to 60 years old at this point, and in Budapest, she was a big star in the theatre and she made her debut playing Juliet in Romeo and Juliet at the age of 20. Now we often talk about the hard-working Twilight Zone actors working hard on television, but Lily was a hard-working theatre actor. She worked in European theatre until she became an American citizen in 1944, and she had many successes on the New York stage. She would carry on working for another 10 years after this episode of The Twilight Zone and her last film, Love, explored similar themes of the relationship between an elderly mother and her daughter-in-law. And Lily died in 1974. But she was a real pro and I think she pulls off a certain type of performance where you could see a child would bask in that attention that she gives but an adult would be maybe slightly annoyed by her. So unfortunately, Grandma passes away, but Billy still has the gift that she gave him. Hey, why'd you come over and play? Is it cold there? I had Winnie's lunch. What did you have? 
Maybe they'll fix my tricycle. Billy? Who are you talking to? Grandma. She's lonesome. She wanted to know if I can come stay with her. Can I, Mama? Can I? It had been a while since I'd seen this one, and I seem to remember it as being, you know, young boy speaks to dead grandmother on the phone, and it's all a bit creepy, but that's about it. But then there's that line, she wanted to know if I could come and stay with her, and the implications of that don't bear thinking about. So it's quite subtle early on, but the unease is starting to creep in, and it doesn't take long for things to become that little less subtle. Your son almost got himself killed. Ran right out in front of my car from nowhere. Lucky thing I'm a cautious driver, Mr. Bales. Oh, excuse me. Billy doesn't play in the streets. I know, Mr. Bales. That's why I didn't say anything when he went out. Oh, it surely would happen. Well, he played in the streets today. He ran right out in front of my car. Didn't even have time to put the brakes on. I couldn't have missed him by more than a few inches. In this scene, where the driver comes in and talks about how Billy's jumped in front of his car. There is a babysitter called Shirley, and she was played by Jenny Maxwell, one of Twilight Zone's more tragic figures. She was probably best known for a role in the Elvis Presley movie, Blue Hawaii, and unfortunately, her and her husband were murdered in a robbery attempt in 1981. Now, you might remember a review I did on the podcast of a book called Twilight Zone Curse of the Stars by Wayne Roland Melton that included a fictionalised account of Jenny Maxwell's death that kind of combines it with the storyline of this episode, except that Jenny had a telephone that she and the neighbourhood kids used to speak to Elvis Presley, who had died by that point. Now, before you think that all sounds rather interesting, it isn't. It's a really distasteful book, I think. It's poorly written. It's a bit of a travesty, to be honest, and I wouldn't even recommend Twilight Zone completists invest in it. But go back and check out that review for more information on that. Mr. Bales, I think you'd better have a talk with your boy. A talk? What about? Well... When I saw that he was all right, I asked him why he did a crazy thing like that, running out in the middle of a busy street. He said somebody told him to. Somebody told him to? I love how the unease builds in this episode. With each scene, we get drip-fed a bit more of what's making Billy do what he's doing. And the thing is already... The implication is there. Grandma wants Billy to kill himself so that he can be with her. But part of your mind is telling yourself, you know, that can't be true. This is 1960. This is television. This is, you know, the Twilight Zone. The one with Mr. Dingle the Strong. Surely it can't get that dark. But then it does. But before we get to that moment, let's take a slight detour and meet Billy's parents. Now I won't spend too long on them because they are very much the typical hard-working actors of the day and I mean no disrespect by that. Philip Abbott will feature in another Twilight Zone episode, The Parallel, and if you like your Marvel comics or cartoons, he was the voice of Nick Fury in the 1995 Iron Man and Spider-Man cartoons. 
Patricia Smith played Sylvia Bales and she lived until 2011 and in her long career she turned up in you know many genre shows things like The Invaders, Mission Impossible and Star Trek The Next Generation. I think together they have a nice chemistry on screen I think they're quite believable as this married couple and in a lot of ways they are that typical American television married couple but I think the dialogue concerning the situation that they're in really gives them something more to work with and like I said earlier there's a lot of truth to it and I think that Beaumont really nails that with the dialogue between them. I know how hard everything's been on you, Syl, everything you've had to go through. But Mother never meant any harm. I suppose not. No, it's true. She had two children before me. She lost them both. She just couldn't let go. That was all she had. Except for Billy. But Billy was me again. A chance to go back, to pretend all those other years never happened. I know it wasn't right or fair to you, Syl. But believe me, no matter what she did, she did it out of love. Love for whom? Oh, Sarah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I really didn't. Oh, you're trembling. Let's go to bed. So they go to bed, or rather beds, because we're still in that time when showing couples together, even married couples in the same bed, wasn't really the done thing. And it is a very strange time because I know, you know, television shows wouldn't even show toilets and that kind of thing now putting a couple in bed had been done before in a show called Mary Kay and Johnny which ran from 1947 to 1950 but then it didn't really happen again on television for about 20 years so we're in a strange place where it's okay to show a child trying to commit suicide but not married couples in the same bed now we get to this sequence where Sylvia and Chris are laying in their respective beds and Billy is on the phone and it's here that the creepiness of the episode really starts to crank up. Even Billy's laughter just sounds so unnerving by this point because Grandma has become quite another thing in our mind. She's no longer that Grandma who just dotes on Billy a bit too much. Now she's this absent figure who's pulling the strings, a somewhat evil intent, but she doesn't see it that way. She thinks she's doing the right thing, but that's if she actually exists at all. But we'll get there. So what is it? What's the matter? Oh, I heard her. Who? She was there. She was there on the phone. Sil, she didn't say anything. But I could hear her breathing. Sil, Sil, I mean it. I. Sil. Billy. Billy? Billy? I don't always subscribe to the what you don't see is scarier than what you do see theory. I think it all very much depends on the project and what its aims are. For example, John Carpenter's movie The Thing is one of the most suspenseful films out there, but it relies a lot on what you do see, that graphic horror, and it's all the better for it. But in this case, I think this is a masterclass in creating fear out of what you don't see or what you don't hear. The creepy lead up, Billy's laughter, the music building, and then Sylvia picking up the phone and dropping it in horror. 
you know, she even says she didn't hear anything except for Grandma breathing. And I think the episode has been crafted so that this could be the troubled spirit of Grandma reaching out to Billy to make him commit suicide to be with her. But it could also just be Billy struggling to come to terms with the first death that he's ever faced in his young life. He's playing make-believe with his phone, imagining that Grandma is still speaking to him, trying to process what's happened and wondering how he can see her again. So I suppose this is a good point to welcome one of the Twilight Zone's most celebrated players, Bill Noomey. He was born in 1954, so would have been about seven at this point, and his first credit is in 1957, so he really did start very young. And I think he has a really good natural quality to him. You know, child actors can be quite insufferable at times, and we'll see that in the Twilight Zone, but he did well for a child of that age. And he obviously comes back to the show twice, in the episodes in praise of pip and probably the most famous one it's a good life where he plays anthony fremont so there's always been this twilight zone connection for him throughout his life and career he has a credit in twilight zone the movie playing a character called tim now it's been a while since i've seen that so i need to refresh my memory on exactly what that was but most interesting of all he does return to the Twilight Zone in the 2003 show for a sequel to It's a Good Life, where he reprised the role of Anthony Fremont. Now, I won't go into that too much here because we'll talk more about that when we get to that episode. But Bill Moomy's sci-fi credentials are very strong. You know, Lost in Space, Babylon 5, Deep Space Nine and many, many other things. But he's also a musician, a writer. He's achieved a lot in his life. And he says of this episode in the Twilight Zone Companion, I remember my mother was really upset with the suicide scenes, thinking that this might make some type of weird impression on me to get something out of them by maybe pulling a stunt like that. When I tried to commit suicide in the pond, we shot a whole thing there with me floating in the water I don't think that was on camera, but I remember doing it. I was a real good swimmer then. Now, of course, Bill Moomy was a child and there are labor laws about children being on movie sets. And quite famously, you know, Twilight Zone the movie had a, uh, an incident that is quite famous, which involved children being on set when they shouldn't be. Now, the director, Jim Sheldon said, I can't recall it if it was the first or second day but we were trying to get a shot just right for the videotape and it just wasn't working. Moomy, of course, was a minor and there were strict laws in effect regarding the number of hours we could use a minor. And after a set time, I believe it was six o'clock, we had to get an extension granted by the board. His mother was the only representative guardian on set at the time, so I asked her if she wouldn't mind a few additional minutes. She had no problem with that. I can tell you that story now. But if the child labor people knew what we had done, the network and book would have been furious. So poor little Billy jumps into the pond and is fished out by his dad. And I don't mind saying, I said earlier I couldn't really remember this episode, but by this point I was almost open-mouthed in disbelief that they would actually go here. 
We don't actually see Billy in the water, but we see his parents' reaction and we hear the water as he's being pulled out. You know, this is dark, dark stuff. Not only has a child drowned on the show, but he's purposely jumped into a pond in order to drown himself. Now things don't look good for Billy, so his father Charles makes a leap of faith and he picks up the toy telephone to speak to his mother. Now this scene in the original script didn't really work and Idelson says the script was being rewritten but even when it was being filmed the scene with the father talking to the grandmother on the toy telephone was filmed twice. They took a break long enough for Rod to rewrite the speech. Charles Beaumont was not involved with the rewrite. I didn't know it at the time but he had Alzheimer's and he couldn't type a word of the script. I still think Richard Matheson was involved with the first script before it was rewritten. Now it's reported slightly differently in the Twilight Zone Companion. Now the interesting thing is that there are a few differences between Mark Scott Zickery's book and Martin Graham's Jr's book and sometimes it's little factual details here and there but these are actual interviews with Idelson where he's given different accounts. Now in the Twilight Zone Companion he says Chuck Beaumont and I were on the set while they were shooting the show says Idelson and Rod came down and said I don't like this last speech I want you to change it Chuck and I went into an office and changed it on the spot so it's at odds with what he says about um, Rod Serling actually changing that scene so you know this book came out before unlocking the door to a television classic maybe he was trying to uh, be gracious about Charles Beaumont's illness at that point. I don't know, but it's an interesting little difference. So let's do a little compare and contrast with how that was originally written. The first script had it like this. Ma, if you can hear me, give him back to us. You said you love me and I know you did. I remember so many things. Remember that funny little dog I had? You let me keep him, even when he tore up all the furniture. Pa wanted to give him away, but you said no. And remember the first day of school, how scared I was? And you sat in the back of the room all morning so I wouldn't cry. And that first pair of long pants, and the time I broke the window with the ball. You hid me under the bed when the policeman came. My graduation, and the first date I had, you remember? With that skinny redhead, how mad you were. We had lots of fights, but I always knew you loved me, and I loved you too so very very much I never really got a chance to tell you Omar please give him back to us so we can love him too give him back to us Mother if you can hear me listen you said you loved Billy at his birthday you you picked him up and, and you hugged him you said he gave you life again. If you really love Billy, give him back. He's only five. He hasn't even started. He doesn't know anything about going to school or girlfriends or wearing long pants even pitching a baseball. He's hardly been out of this room 
out of this house. There's a whole world he hasn't even touched. Mother, you said Billy gave you life again. Well, now you can give him life. If you really love him, let him live. So whether it was Rod Serling or Charles Beaumont and Idelson who rewrote that, I think it really was an improvement, the one that ended up in the show. Now you probably realise by now that I am really very enamoured with this episode. I think it's a really well-crafted piece of writing and television, you know, starting out with that wholesome American family, but then just gradually cranking up the unease throughout it. It could have been just that, is Billy talking to grandmother on the phone show and left her at that, but it does go so much darker. Rod Sailing says in his closing narration, to be believed or disbelieved depending on your frame of reference. It could have been grandma speaking to Billy, but as I said earlier, it might just have been Billy struggling to process what's happened. And unfortunately, this is a situation that families face all the time, how to break death to a child. It's difficult, and I think long-distance call works on that very human level, but then it adds in this little element to the mix, which creates what I think is a great Twilight Zone that maybe doesn't get spoken about as much as those most famous of episodes but maybe it should. A toy telephone, an act of faith, a set of improbable circumstances all combined to probe a mystery, to fathom a depth, to send a facet of light into a dark after region, to be believed or disbelieved, depending on your frame of reference, a fact or a fantasy, a substance or a shadow, but all of it very much a part of the Twilight Zone. Now I've got a couple of uh, emails to read off listeners, but before I do, I just want to hold my hands up to a little mistake that I made in the last episode. I've had so many emails and tweets and messages about this one that it's untrue. God help me if I ever get something wrong again, because it seems that that's when you get the most feedback. But that's fine. I said that Buddy Ebsen played Jethro in the Beverly Hillbillies, when in fact he of course played Uncle Jed. Now, you know, I knew that, I watched the Beverly Hillbillies as a kid, and I'd done the research for the episode, but sometimes when I get into a flow talking, uh, I just say things, and I had been saying Jimbo throughout, and of course, I just said Jethro because of the similarities, but... So yes, a little mistake, which I've corrected in that episode now, so I won't receive emails for the rest of my life. But uh, thank you to everyone who pointed that out for me. And here's a couple of emails in submitted for your approval. Steve Noble sent an email about Long Distance Call and he says, Hi Tom, great to hear another episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. It's always top of my feed and I really look forward to new episodes. Thank you, Steve. He said, I just watched Long Distance Call 
and I thought it was superb. It capped a run of emotionally resonant stories that has been running for the last three episodes. Static wasn't the most action-packed of the stories, but the ending where the couple regained their youth brought a genuine lump to my throat. The prime mover similarly was resolved by the strength of friendship over cynicism, a now long-distance call, almost a chamber piece about grief with very dark overtones. It was really an unusual and creepy theme, a grandmother trying to entice her grandson to join her in death and almost succeeding. The acting was first class across the board and even the bit players such as the babysitter were believable. And what could have been a crass and maudlin scene as dad talked into the toy telephone was rendered heartbreaking by Philip Abbott's dramatic talents. But the standout was Bill Moomy, what an amazingly talented actor he was as a kid. I assume that this was his first part, but it looks to have been at least his seventh. It's no surprise he got so much work back then. The final big surprise of the episode was just how well the videotaping worked. They seemed to have got past the technical issues that beset videotaped episodes before, and the experience became weirdly like watching a home recording of a family coping with loss. This added to the intimacy that prevailed throughout and gave an extra edge to this tale of a suicidal child. I can't remember the last time I watched this, but it leapt up in my estimation. Might have made my top 20, if not my top 10 Twilight Zone episodes. Thanks again for your podcast, Tom. They're always a highlight of my week. Steve. You know, Steve, you and me both. I was quite surprised by this one myself. I think maybe... Maybe it does get lumped in with the videotaped ones, so maybe that's why it isn't higher on some people's lists. I don't know, but like you said, it's it's got an intimacy to it, and it would have been interesting to see how different it was on film. But it was videotaped, and it it might actually add to the story, like you say, make it that little closer. And yeah, I agree with everything you say there. I think we're on the same page with that one. So thank you, Steve. I, I appreciate your email. I've had an email from Jeff and he says, Hi Tom, I don't normally write letters like this. It's not really in my nature and I typically feel awkward having these type of discussions, but here I am. I really love the podcast and the work you've put into it. I listen to a lot of podcasts and this is one of my favourites. Not just because it's the Twilight Zone, but also because of the attention to detail you give to each show. I often suffer from insomnia and listening to this before bed quiets my mind and helps me sleep, so thank you for that. I really enjoyed The Night of the Meek and I felt I might share my view, albeit somewhat false, on the Twilight Zone in general and Rod's part in it. Factually, I know that Rod created the Twilight Zone, but I like to think that Rod is more of an ambassador of the Twilight Zone, someone who freely travels to and from to bring us the stories from this other dimension. I also like to think of these stories like fables, something on the same level as the grim fairy tales in that they are a story used to teach us something about life, or maybe even morality in some cases like this one with the Knight of the Meek. I think this is one very much like a story of a town nearby, of a guy we all know or who have seen who given a fantastic opportunity to something wonderful and selfless 
for everyone he comes into contact with. I hope that makes sense. Like I said, I don't write letters like this very often. Thank you again for the work you've put into this great project. And that was from Jeff. You know, Jeff, if you don't write letters very often, then the fact that you've uh, done that for me makes it all the better. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Going back to Night of the Meek there. And I like how you say, you know, Rod Sailing, more than just the writer of the Twilight Zone, but that ambassador from the Twilight Zone. That's something I've always thought as well. So thanks for your message, Jeff. So thank you for your messages, guys. And if you want to feed back to the Twilight Zone podcast, then you can email me at tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. Now, before I go, I've had another little flurry of iTunes reviews, which is great. I, I love getting them. You know, it's um, I've always said it, it's one of the only kind of rewards there is as a podcaster. You know, some podcasters make money. I certainly don't. So... When people put reviews on iTunes, it, it really means a lot. So I've had new reviews in the US from Mr. Fry, Intra86, Dylan Studio, Adam Kosky, and my name is Jeffro One. So thanks for your review, guys. It really helps get uh, the Twilight Zone podcast up there. And I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if anyone else has the time to do that, then I would appreciate that too. And I always try and read out people who put reviews on there so next time is an episode called 100 yards over the rim and i will see you then <laughs>